I was thinking, you know, there's a wonderful story about uh, that John Kennedy uh, had a dinner for a group of Nobel Prize winners at the White House. Many of you may have heard this story, but, um, uh, but Kennedy told the, the Nobel Prize winners that the last time there was this much intelligence in the White House was when Thomas Jefferson had dinner alone. <laughs> and um, while, uh, while the cultural riches of Western Marin County are known to all of us, I have to say that when uh, Eric Karpeles and Michael Sell moved here a few years ago, they definitely bumped up the, uh, <laughs> the cultural resources of our extraordinary community. Uh, they are extraordinary artists, extraordinary human beings, wonderful neighbors. They live near Charlotte and I in, uh, in Bolinas. And so we were very, very honored when Mike agreed to have a show here and when Eric agreed to give a talk on Proust. Um, Eric uh, is a, a very versatile man. I talked Eric into including some of the images of his own art uh, in his talk tonight, which he didn't do when he gave this masterful talk on his book, In Point Reyes. And his book, uh, Paintings and Proust, uh, has been greeted with just tremendous uh, critical uh, uh, acclaim. Uh, the, there's an issue of Art in America, is this the current issue, that has a review of the book. He was asked to give a, a keynote address to the Proust Society of uh, America on the book. Uh, and he has a, a new book coming out next year called Proust's Overcoat by an Italian journalist named Lorenzo Foschini, uh, which uh, he translated from the French and the Italian. And I've had an opportunity to read, and it's a lovely, lovely documentation of the true story of Proust's overcoat. Um, and, um, uh, excuse me? Sure. Right. So it's, it's a wonderful book. It's, you know, eccentric, lovely, so on and so forth. Um, Eric uh, is uh, born in New York City. Uh, he has been at Haverford College, where, by the way, the, the Bolinas connection his professor of philosophy was Tink Thompson. And a class that Tink Thompson, who's a well-known private investigator in Bolinas now, and, uh, the, uh, and the class that Eric took with Tink on Kierkegaard was a, a change moment in his life. Uh, he, uh, he went to uh, school uh, at Oxford University and then the New School, uh, in New York and lived in France in the 70s uh, and had fellowships at La Cité des Arts in Paris and the Camargo Foundation as well. Um, and he writes about painting and the intersection of literature and visual aesthetics. So um, I won't take more time now uh, but simply say it's a really great honor to introduce Eric and we all look forward to the evening with you. Eric. Thank you all for coming. I have to say, 
having an introduction by Michael Lerner is some kind of a blessing in this community, and I'm, I feel very blessed. Um, where to begin? Uh, I think we should just jump right in. As Michael said, he asked me uh, to begin my talk. I have a couple of images. Can everybody hear me? First of all, I have to worry about projection, so let me know if you can hear me. Um, I, I have some images to begin of my work at the beginning of the talk, and then we'll just segue into Proust. It's a, little, it's a lot harder to get me to talk about myself than about Proust, so uh, that will be brief, but uh, there'll be time um, after. I work in oil on canvas, and I've been painting most of my life. Uh, I studied as a kid at the Art Students League in New York. Uh, this work jumps you up to around uh, the late 80s, early 90s, where I was painting in Pennsylvania. Uh, the work comes out of uh, observation of the landscape. Earlier I had done much more uh, conventional landscapes where you would recognize forms of hills and trees and, and mountains. The work then began to dissolve into pure atmosphere, and this is the kind of the beginning of, of a, a certain phase of my work. These pieces uh, are approximately six by seven feet. I tend to like to work large, and the gesture continued to expand during that period. So one panel was then enlarged to two panels, which led to three panels. And I began to discover my gesture, which was really a large span. And I enjoyed working in that dimension, which uh, can be a certain limitation or a cross to bear for a painter to have such enormous works. But I found a way of attempting to integrate my own work uh, with um, other issues that interested me besides just pure painting. And one of the things that I became um, very conscious of in the, the late 80s, early 90s, was that uh, in the HIV AIDS community, there was a point at which the institutions which were supposed to deal with issues of loss and dying were not addressing those uh, necessarily for everybody. And so I created a space out of my paintings that became uh, a, a meditation space or a... Um, uh, an enclosure for dealing with those issues. It was called the sanctuary. Uh, it was measured 30 by eight, uh, 50 feet, and I designed it so that it could break down and travel. Uh, and it was a room uh, that was used for all sorts of purposes, organizations. Um, a lot of AIDS organizations had memorial services in it, but they were also used for all sorts of um, uh, meditative and contemplative uh, uses. This is actually the opposite side of what you just saw. You enter through between those two panels at the rear and come into the room, into the space. Now, uh, when this was uh, traveled around the country, its last uh, installation was in Grand Central Terminal in New York, uh, where it was seen by Lawrence and Mary Rockefeller, who are the heads of an organization called the Healthcare Chaplaincy. And they commissioned me to do a private chapel for their public organization, and that is called the, um, yeah, now the, uh, uh, it's called the Rockefeller Chapel. This is a permanent installation on uh, the east side of Manhattan. The organization trains people in 32 different faith traditions to 
become chaplains to deal with issues of loss and dying. And they wanted a space where all those different faith traditions could come together for a prayerful meeting. Um, And so when they saw the sanctuary, they commissioned me to do this. And I must say that it's work of this nature which fed me during those years, uh, and it's work of this nature which immediately attracted me to Commonweal, to the idea of you know, uh, where the spirit and art intersect. And these are some studio pieces uh, from the late 90s, beginning of the, uh, what do you call them, the zeros? The, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the aughts, yes. And you can see a little bit in some of this now, the new verticality, that there's a sense where I was reducing myself back to a single canvas, that I was essentially evoking the transitional phases of the other paintings where there was a a line in between. Again, about six by seven feet, most of these. Okay, now on to Proust. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, I have uh, found that Proust as a subject, if tonight is a perfect indication, seems to elicit a lot of interest, not necessarily from people who have read Proust, which is a very minute proportion of the population, um, but he has really become an iconic figure in uh, world literature. And I began to think as I was putting this together uh, that when I was a young student and I began reading, uh, the two kings of modernism were in the literary tradition were Joyce and Proust. And what I began to think was that what has happened since, now that we are in this, this phrase, that the name that drives me crazy is postmodern, but nothing else has kind of come up since, we are in a time of postmodernism. Um, what's happened is that I think Joyce has maintained his iconoclastic image and his icon um, presence as a modernist, but Proust has somehow moved beyond modernism into our own life. And I think what that is in his interest in uh, a variety of cultural experiences from the very low to the very high is an indication of postmodernism. His interest in um, the, very, uh, very, uh, the varieties of sexual experience um, also brings him into our own time much more so than, than the others. So um, this is just uh, an introduction to one facet of Proust's writing and his, and his great genius is the way in which he made use of, of painting images. And here we begin with photographs. I thought <laughs> I would give you a little context before we started. Um, these are, Proust was born in 1871. This is a very critical year, and it's a year which I think is... Um, uh, he had nothing to do with that, but I think it reflects a great deal about who he became. In 1871, the Second Empire, head by Napoleon III, went to war against Prussia. Napoleon III became a prisoner of war, and the empire crumbled. There was a period after that, when before the Third Republic started, that was known as the Paris Commune. And the city of Paris decided that it was going to take control of itself, like the other cities of, Paris, of France, but Paris had never been allowed to. And it was really the um, worker classes that, ra- that came together and decided they wanted to have the power. And essentially what happened was that they um, barricaded Paris from the rest of the country. 
And what happened was that the National Assembly forces, the French army that was based in Versailles, began to bomb Paris. And this is some of the devastation. You can see, those of you who know the uh, Hotel de Ville, the uh, city hall in Paris, this was the state of it in 1871. These months, from March to May 1871, when Paris was cut off from the world, when people started taking animals from the zoo to kill them so that people would have food, the city was cut off. And this is when Proust was in utero. His mother was carrying him. And in point of fact, Proust, who was not a well man, who had enormous asthmatic and bronchial conditions, some of that has been possibly traced back to the deprivations that his mother went through in those years. Now, the critical thing is, historically, we can look at this for two ways. One is that this represents, this year, 1871, the year that he was born, represents the time when the aristocracy really began to decline and the increasingly wealthy middle class began to rise. So you've got this kind of a pivot between those two things happening. This is very much the subject of Proust's great novel. Among, you can say that about almost anything, <laughs> that this is the subject of Proust's great because he wrote about so many things. Um, the, the other way to look at it is in terms of um, the actual, uh, the, the world in which he immediately grew up was one which was very divided. And he, as an artist, constantly turned his attention to the divisions, to the separations, and then somehow as an artist created synthesis and unity. And he saw the complexity and the wholeness of the picture. And I, I start with this because I think it gives you a little background to see where he came from. Here's Marcel Proust 18 years later. This is when he did his year of military service. He was a young man who had come out of the uh, lycée with a brilliant education. French high school education in those days was almost incomparable to anything else European culture has provided. Um, so he had passed his back. He was doing his military service, and his father, the age-old story, insisted that he go to school, to law school, because he didn't have a profession. His father wanted him to be a diplomat or to have a job, a real job. But Proust had always been fascinated with paintings. He had always been involved in uh, a very high level of cultural study, both at high school and at home. And this is another division that Proust um, synthesizes, is his parents. His father was the grandson of a grocer, lived in a very small town in the heart of France, and he rose from that small town to become one of the most preeminent physicians in Europe. His father created the concept of the sanitary uh, corridor, which is what stopped cholera from spreading in Europe. This was a man who was, came from a very humble background and became very eminent. Uh, his mother's family uh, was very, very French, but was also Jewish. And this represents something in the society of France at that time, which was very new, in which the upper middle class Jews were beginning to mix into the uh, upper class uh, Catholic. And Proust is the amalgam of those two things, of those two, those two cultures. His erudition, his, um, his love of music and art all come from his mother. His mother was a remarkably accomplished woman. Um, and he has both of those sides in him. He never thought of himself as Jewish. He was baptized. He was raised as a Catholic. Uh, but he always honored his mother's Judaism. And this became very important 
when the Dreyfus affair uh, erupted in France. The Louvre was Proust's classroom. It was where he really learned so much about painting. And Proust was always very literary. He always wrote, and he wrote beautifully. But Proust, as a young man, never had a subject, really. And what happened was that painting became his subject. He knew he wanted to write a great novel. He always knew about a book that was in him. But he began to write about painting as a way of starting out as a writer. And he would go to the Louvre incessantly. He met three men when, during his year of military service who were very um, high up in the arist aristocracy, but also enormously cultured young men. And they, the four of them, would go to the Louvre three, four times a week after school. Um, and they would stop and they would talk to each other about the paintings. And they would, one of the things they loved to do was to look at a painting and identify people that they knew in the painting itself. And then, conversely, when they were out in the cafes with friends, they would say, they would look at a composition of people and you say, oh, yes, that's a Tissot, or they, whatever it was, they had this constant living with the paintings themselves. Uh, Proust wrote reviews, he wrote uh, essays, he wrote poems. Part of what he learned in the Louvre was to be in the, spa the same space where his great hero, Charles Baudelaire, had been. Baudelaire was a poet who was very important to him and had written himself uh, a poem called The Beacons. And in each stanza of that poem, he addresses a different painter. He writes about Leonardo in one and about Rubens and about Goya. And this kind of attempt to unify or to bring together the visual and the verbal was something that preoccupied Proust and came to preoccupy him. This is a painting by Van Dyck, who was a favorite of Proust, and Proust wrote a poem uh, about Van Dyck. One of his friends, Robert de Belie, uh, told him the story about how uh, James I, this was, this was a portrait of a man at a time when England was about to go into civil war, when Cromwell took on the crown, and a whole generation of young men were slaughtered. And in his poem, Proust wrote about uh, tous les beaux hommes qui vont bientôt mourir, all of the beautiful men who are about to die. This was in his poem that he wrote uh, in early 1900. Uh, and it especially resonates with us now because Europe was about to go into the First World War and a whole other generation of men was slaughtered. So it's something that resonates deeply within uh, Proust's uh, body of work. Another favorite was Chardin. Chardin was a painter who observed the minutiae and the kind of the, the small moments and the, the small things in life. And he was enormously humble and he was a very, very great artist. And Proust I think his French sensibility really came to the fore in his admiration of Chardin, about whom he wrote essays and poems. And in this detail of a painting of Chardin, a simple cup of tea and a little tea cookie, um, we, see, we find much later in Proust the uh, literary corollary of this little cookie, which is the Madeleine, which is the, um, the cobblestone. And so it's through Chardin that Proust learned what he came to say, that Chardin taught him that there was beauty where he had never imagined he could find it. 
And that's a key Proustian idea as well, that as we go through life, it is the simple things that we hold on to and that the simple things that, that can reveal so much because they see so much. Proust traveled when he was well to, um, to Holland. He wanted to see the northern painters, and he especially loved Franz Hals. He learned a great deal about portraiture. And one of, my, uh, one of the things I would like to uh, get you to think about as you're, looking, uh, you're going through this with me is the idea that Proust became a painter in a way himself, and that he painted portraits with words, and he painted landscapes with words, and he painted seascapes with words, and he painted um, religious moments, and he painted historical moments. All of those things that occupied the, the European painter of his time, he came onto his own mastery of verbally. And it was only through the study of the great painters that he was able to, uh, to prepare himself for his own personal work. You see here in one of his favorite paintings, The Night Watch, which he has a character, Madame Vadurin, say is one of the great treasures of the world. Um, you can see the, almost the cast of characters that becomes novelistic if you look at it from that point of view. Each of these people is individually realized and makes up a larger composition so that the transition between the literary and the painterly becomes almost seamless. Now, Proust wasn't just trapped within the walls of the Louvre in the 17th and 18th century. The other confluence that's so critical to his making is the fact that he grew up in Paris at a time when painting was remarkably animated in the world. Paris was a breeding ground for artists. Artists from anywhere in the world would come to Paris because that was where you were validated. That was where you had to make your mark. And so at the same time that there was the official salon there was the Salon de Refusé. Those that were refused from the Salon's official entry created their own Salon. And this painting in 1863 by Manet caused a scandal. Proust learned a lot from looking at these paintings as well. And so he began to shift. He pivoted in that the same way that I talked about 1871 being a year between the rise of the bourgeoisie and the decline of the aristocracy. He shifted between classicism and neoclassicism, and what became known as modernism. This was a key moment. This happened before he was born, but the lore of the 63 uh, exhibition was very much alive and sprouted impressionism. It sprouted an entire new way of looking at art. What I want you to think about a little bit also is the model, the nude woman. Uh, Victorine Muron was her name. She uh, posed for Manet. She posed for uh, Monet. She was uh, a popular model. But Manet here uses her in a way which you can see why it would be shocking. She's sitting in a fairly conventional park with men who are fully dressed, and she's nude, and she's looking at you almost defiantly. There's a sense of impudence about her, but there's a sense about which she is aware that she is being looked at, and at the same time she is welcoming that regard. And this is something that Proust also came to use with his characters. You have a character like the uh, Baron de Charlus who is very much a peacock. He <laughs> struts around and he likes to be seen and he likes to have uh, this kind of voyeuristic relationship with the people in which he's involved, with whom he's involved. 
Here again we have Victorine Muron posing in, as Olympia, another painting that shocked. This again is 1863. And on the bottom you see Ang's grand odalesque. odalesque. Um, she is the embodiment of Second Empire refinement and cool. She is uh, elegant and she is very beautiful. This latter-day odalisque by Manet is entirely different. And the shock of people having known that and seeing this was enormous. The Ang was painted 50 years before the Manet. And Proust wrote about these two paintings 50 years later. And he has the Duchesse de Guermont, one of his characters, a woman who knows everything and is very uh, fond of her own opinion, talk about how, oh, she was in the Louvre the other day and she was with the princess and they were looking at the Manet. She said, it's not such a scandal anymore. It just looks like an ang. <laughs> and this is Proust's also, the way in which he, time is eclipsed, in which at the moment we become so absorbed in our own zeitgeist that it is as little as 50 years, it becomes things, the power of that becomes completely neutralized. I should say, which I didn't mention before, that um, part of the reason that Proust is really uh, very much happening right now is that this, this year marks the 100th year in which he started writing his great novel. Next to the um, Déjeuner sur l'herbe, in the 1863 Salon de Refusé, hung this painting by Whistler. Whistler was um, somebody who was to become increasingly important to Proust as a painter later on. Uh, but you can see how this was considered almost decadent in its minimal effect. That the all white, it's a painting that's often considered a touchstone for uh, what became known as abstract art and later minimalist art. The woman, the model, was a woman named uh, Jo Hiffernan. She was a, Sco uh, a Scottish woman and she, she and Whistler were lovers, uh, and he painted many portraits of her. This is she again, painted by Courbet, Gustave Courbet. Courbet and Whistler were great friends until Joe Hiffernan left him for Courbet. <laughs> now, this fits into the Proust cycle, or scheme of things, in the fact that Proust was fascinated by uh, jealousy. And through these paintings, he came to understand what it might have been for one man to devote himself so lovingly as an artist to one subject to lose her to another man. And he dealt with that uh, a great deal in his own character studies, and in fact, in his own person. But in his novel, it's actually a greater fear in his character's mind to worry that his lover is sleeping with somebody of her own sex. And this kind of um, sexual ambiguity, Whistler and Courbet were entirely heterosexual men. Um, and here Courbet is painting his, his lover in a clinch with another woman. This is very much scandalous at the time. Uh, but it all had classical overtones so that it was presented in a way so that it would not be 
shocking to those who wanted to. But in point of fact, it is a very erotic painting. Another painter of the time was Monet, whose studies of nature so moved Proust and so inspired him. He wrote that Monet was always able to find the magic in a place. And as Jean-Yves Tadier, who's the biographer of Proust, wrote, whenever Proust wrote enthusiastically about somebody's work, he was always foreshadowing his own. <laughs> and so uh, the way that he was able to write it with uh, pleasure about Monet, you knew that he was studying Monet and thinking about how does an individual eye look at the world about him. And in composing his novel, these paintings became very important. Renoir was another great of the time. You, know, you can go through, this is the greatest hits of French painting. Um, uh, this is a portrait of a man on the left named um, Charles F. Roussy. He was a very wealthy man who was an editor of a magazine called the Gazette of, of Beaux, uh, Fine Arts, the Gazette de Beaux-Arts, which is a very influential magazine. And the offices of that magazine had the most spectacular art library in Paris. And through Proust's connections with the aristocratic young man in the army, he got an invitation and he was able to make use of this library. Proust came of age at a time when art books began to be um, appearing with great regularity. In 1890, that year when he, I showed you as a cadet that he was in the army, uh, in Florence, a, a photographic company called Alanari began to photograph the interiors of churches. And for 400 years, those churches you know, had been vulnerable to smoke, whatever it was, but they got documented for the first time. And people in Paris could go to magazines and go to books and see uh, frescoes that had not been seen up close for hundreds of years. So all of this fed in. In addition to all of the work that he did in the Louvre, he was able to expand his repertoire of paintings by reading magazines and, and reading monographs about great artists. Uh, F.U.C. appears in this picture in the top hat in the back. He was a great patron of the Impressionists. And F.U.C. was part of this class of um, kind of well-heeled aristocrats, who many of whom didn't have jobs and hung around all day at their clubs. This is a portrait by uh, Jean Tissot, of uh, the Circle Royale Club in Paris. This is uh, an example of what uh, Anatole Braillard was talking about when he wrote that the French aristocracy expired in Proust's arms. <laughs> he said he gave them a legitimacy they probably never deserved. And that is his subject. And he was considered when he was young quite a snob because he was always interested in going to this party and meeting that duchess and going to the opera with uh, Madame So-and-so. So he did do a lot of social climbing, but all of it, as with the paintings, was being squirreled away for observations he was making about character, not just wealthy characters. It was, uh, the obvious side of him was that he was a middle-class kid who was trying to get known in, uh, in the upper classes. So that was obvious, but it didn't, people didn't realize that at the same time he was studying the baker's son and he was studying the girls on the street who were selling sardines. So it was a, a, essentially a universal education that he was giving himself. The man on the right is a man named Charles 
Haas. He was part of the, uh, this club. He was also a member of the jockey club. He was Sarah Bernhardt's lover. Um, and he was what the narrator in Proust's novels, his grandfather would have called a Jew of a good sort. <laughs> it was very unusual that uh, a Jewish man was, he was the only Jewish member of the jockey club. He was an extremely erudite uh, and charming man. And he is the basis of the character in the novel called Charles Swan. They share the same first name. And it's, I think, very telling that he's on the margin. He's on the side of this group. He's part of it, but he's not of it. So here we are with Proust at about the turn of the century. He has been exposed in terms of paintings to everything from um, Pietro de Rimini to Picasso. This is an enormous spectrum of world history, of art history, that he has kind of experienced in his mind, through his eyes. Uh, Picasso, interestingly, uh, knew Proust. The two of them would see each other at parties. And Proust said about a Picasso portrait that it was as beautiful as anything Carpaccio had done, which was a great compliment. Um, and Picasso, in his uh, memoirs, writes about seeing Proust at parties huddled with the dukes. And he, um, he said that it was, there was Proust sur le motif, which means essentially, sur le motif is a, an art, a term for an artist working before a landscape. He goes to the motif, and that's where he's working. This was Proust sur le motif. And it was from Picasso, a great tribute, because the term most specifically refers to Cezanne. And Cezanne was everybody's hero in Paris at that time. And to equate Proust with Cezanne was, was quite remarkable. So all this time, Proust is writing reviews, and he's writing essays, and he's writing poems. And he still, he has begun to write a novel, which has begun to, as is his want, to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But he, begins to re, he began to realize at a certain point that it was out of control, and it was unshaped, and that it was not where he wanted to be. So he ditched it. And he began to realize that he needed to have another project. And all through this time, he had begun to read the writings of the English art critic, John Ruskin. John Ruskin changed Proust's life in a way because he took him out of uh, the literary world and into the world of um, aesthetics. And this helped formulate all of these things that Proust had been studying all these years. And for Ruskin, the equation of psychology was aset with aesthetics was crucial. It was fairly unusual. He was the first, really, to write about the artist as um, a psychological being, Ruskin. And Proust really loved that. Now, Proust um, didn't read English. He had no English. Uh, but he figured out a way to translate Ruskin. This is one of Ruskin's um, great studies. He wrote about the Gothic cathedrals in France. That was one of his great passions. And Proust, as a pilgrim, went to visit all the places that, Proust, that, that Ruskin wrote about. Many people in Europe, in art forms, in art circles, went on Ruskinian pilgrimages all through the, the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, and it was through the study of these churches that Proust, who now began to have a sense of um, character, began to sense the idea of structure. And it's the architecture that Ruskin writes about with such passion that helped 
Proust begin to understand how to structure a novel. So once again, he's learning from another art form about his own. This is a, um, a detail, the Madonna uh, over the, the main portal here. He wrote about this. He saw the, the light hitting this, the, actually the sun hitting this Madonna. And in the, you can see a little trace of gold. The whole figure used to be in gold. And he talks about the way that the past came alive for him at that moment, that he, you know, in 1900 was standing in the porch and seeing something that had been sculpted in the 13th century, lighted with sunlight, and it just came to life. And that became uh, a sense in which history came alive for him. That was the past. And the present time, he was aware of Monet taking up very similar issues. Monet painted the front of, not the Amiens Cathedral you just saw, this is the Rouen Cathedral, uh, at many different times at light, at, uh, of the day, in different lights. And you can sense, knowing just a little bit about Proust and about his sense of time and, and memory, that he found in Monet an enormous colleague. On the right is Proust's mother. She spoke fluent English. She spoke fluent German. As I said, she was a very well-educated, uh, upper-class Jewish woman. The woman on the left is Marie Nordlinger, who is the English cousin of Ronaldo Hahn, who was Proust's lover at the time. And she was an art historical student who knew Ruskin very well. So one evening, as Proust was going on about how much he loved Ruskin, even though he hadn't read him, <laughs> um, they hatched a plan to actually work together. And the way that this came about was that Proust's mother did a literal word-by-word -word translation of the Proust texts. And then Proust, who had enormous... Sorry? Excuse me, of the Ruskin text. Um, he, did, um, in a, he had an enormous sensibility and sensitivity to what, what Ruskin felt. And so he was able to take the literal translation and shape it into a text of his own. It was very faithful to Ruskin, but it is also, in a certain way, very Proustian. But in doing this, Proust began to see how Ruskin worked. And what, if you read a Ruskin text now, especially if you read Ruskin's autobiography, it reads like Proust. And in point of fact, it's Proust that really reads like Ruskin. That's how strong the influence was. Ruskin exposed Proust to Italian primitive painting, which he had really not had any experience of. Again, through the um, development of commercial photography in which all of these frescoes and sculptures and churches were coming to be available for the first time without going to Italy, um, Proust began to uh, see all of these works, which came so important to him. And he actually went to Venice and specifically went to see the Giotto paintings. In his novel, he refers to these angels flying above lament in the lamentation. And his analogy is the German plane circling over Paris during the, uh, the First World War. The figure on the left is uh, the figure of Charity, which is in the Scrovani Chapel also in Padua. And f this figure Proust uses in his novel by having the character Swan identify one of the working girls in the house as being just like 
uh, charities, Jato's charity. You can see she's got a little, um, almost like a, a paunch, and the, the working girl in the house is pregnant. And she's, you know, she's going around doing her um, chores in very much this style. So it, it's the use of the character, Swan, we see how he sees the world through painting. So once again, Proust often puts things that are removed. It's not a direct observation. It's the, he takes a character and has that happen. And within the novel, we go from Swan to the narrator himself. And there are enormous parallels. So what we first have Swan see, we then have the narrator see in the same way. And this figure of charity appears as a way of the narrator understanding how Swan sees the world aesthetically. So this is the kind of photograph that was coming into being in Paris in the 1890s, turn of the century. And you can see this is the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo, the famous ceiling on top. Then below it is a, a, um, a frieze of popes painted by Botticelli and Gerlandau. And then at the bottom, frescoes of the story of the life of Moses. Now, this is the kind of thing that you can go crazy over. <laughs> I mean, there's so much, there is so much here. It's so rich. It's so Italian, in a way, in its, in its intensity and density. And what Ruskin served uh, for Proust was that he helped put somewhat blinders on Proust to be able to focus down onto the details. So we have something like this, a photograph he would have seen of the Sistine Chapel. Proust never went to Rome. He never saw the Sistine Chapel. And then through Ruskin, we get this bottom panel, one of the specific panels of the life and trials of Moses. And then once again, we channel down, and we have this single figure. This is Ruskin's own watercolor painting after the Botticelli. Ruskin was in the Vatican. Ruskin was there. Proust never was. But Proust was able to learn from this painting about Zipporah is her name. She's the, um, the wife of Moses. And what I'm going to do for you, what I'm going to do for you, <laughs> uh, what I'm going to do now is read, this is a text. Swan, the character that I've been talking about, the very erudite scholar, uh, has fallen in love with a courtesan, with a, a woman who is of the demi-mondain, who's, um, she's lovely, she's, uh, you know, charming. He falls for her unexpectedly, and he doesn't take it very seriously. It's a, an affair for him, until one day he sees her, and in her, he sees this figure of Zipporah. She was not very well, and she received him in a dressing gown of mauve crepe de chine, drawing its richly embroidered material over her bosom like a cloak. Standing there beside him, her loosened hair flowing down her cheeks, bending one knee in a slightly balletic pose in order to be able to lean without effort over the picture at which she was gazing, her head on one side with those great sullen eyes of hers, when there was nothing to animate her, she struck Swan by her resemblance to the figure of Zipporah, Jethro's daughter, which is to be seen in one of the Sistine frescoes. Swan stood gazing at her. Traces of the old fresco were apparent in her face and her body, and these he tried incessantly to recapture thereafter, both when he was with Odette and when he was only thinking of her in her absence. 
And although his admiration of the Florentine masterpiece was doubtless based upon his discovery that it had been reproduced in her, the, similar, the similarity enhanced her beauty also and made her more precious. Swan reproached himself with his failure, hitherto, to estimate at her true worth a creature whom the great Sandro would have adored and was gratified that his pleasure in seeing Odette should have found a justification in his own aesthetic culture. He placed on his study table, as if it were a photograph of Odette, a reproduction of Jethro's daughter. The vague feeling of sympathy which attracts one to a work of art, now that he knew the original on flesh and blood of Jethro's daughter, became a desire which more than compensated thenceforward for the desire which Odette's physical charms had at first failed to inspire in him. When he sat for a long time gazing at Botticelli, he would think of his own living Botticelli, who seemed even lovelier still. And as he drew towards him the photograph of Zipporah, he would imagine that he was holding Odette against his heart. So you see here how Proust uses a painting as a transitional object. Botticelli becomes, the image of Zipporah's daughter becomes like a prison through which Swan sees the world. And in a way, it almost frees him from his anxiety about the woman just being a courtesan and being, uh, you know, uh, a prostitute. And through the eyes of Botticelli, through the refraction of, of Zipporah, she gains a kind of almost biblical purity. And this is enough for him. If he can have that belief in her, her great aesthetic beauty, then it doesn't matter who she is. Here we now have an opposition. Ruskin on the left in a self-portrait and Whistler on the right in a self-portrait. These two men began to wreak havoc in Proust's mind <laughs> in a certain way. Uh, Proust always took on mentors. He learned from Anatole France. Whoever he felt could teach him something, he would, he would take from. And then quite often he would absorb it and then move on. And he had come to that point with Ruskin. He had learned from him what he needed. Uh, and he began to tire of Ruskin's overly moral tone. He took a very righteous tone. And what I had talked about before between the marriage of psychology and aesthetics, Ruskin really believed that art was about the good in a platonic sense. It represented virtue. Art represented the best. And Proust was uncomfortable with that notion of, of, of good and not good. Um, and Whistler was the true bohemian. He believed that art was only about beauty. And beauty, to him, was the end of art. And he fostered a movement that became known as art for art's sake. You can see this is not a great historical painting. This is not a religious painting. This does not have enormous, what would be called, moral character to it. But it does have an enormous amount of beauty. And there is um, a moment at which Proust began to move away from Ruskin and to be pulled towards the, the aesthetic of, of Whistler. In 1900, Proust was well enough to travel. He was at this point um, 28, and uh, he went to Venice twice. His family was moving apartments. They were changing their apartments to move to a, a rather larger and more luxurious apartment. And he took the time 
to get away from all of that happening and went to Venice. And in Venice, he began to struggle with these two opposing aesthetics. This is Ruskin's take on Venice. He went through Ruskin with, Ruskin wrote a book called The Stones of Venice, and Proust went through, through Venice carrying this book like a Bible. And you can see here, these, this is Ruskin's sketchbook in which he's noticing and, and describing and, and drawing all the very, very succinct details and also the architectural studies, the firm, absolute, rigid, and stone-like uh, elements of the Doge's palace and, and of San Marco, very well realized and recognized. And this is Whistler's Venice. <laughs> so what we have is the distinction between, um, on the one hand, Ruskin's idea of appearances, of how everything looks, and then on the other hand, you have Whistler's idea of essences. And it's that which began to spark, also in, in Proust, a sense of the complexity of things. He came back to Paris in 1900, and he walked into the Durand Royal Gallery, which was having its first of two shows of Monet's Water Lilies. This came as an enormous revelation to Proust, and it was Monet, really, who relieved Proust of the burden of scale. Pr Monet believed or practiced that a painting didn't have to be one canvas, that he could spread his universe across many canvases. And that analogy in Proust is the fact that he could write one book, but it could be in several volumes. And that was a real... Uh, light bulb moment for him. <laughs> he really thought that this is it, that I, you know, I don't have to always think about containing, I can expand. And it was Monet's um, remarkable spread of, uh, of the water lilies that inspired him in that way. So he began to write his novel. This is now 1908, 1909, and the novel that we know as um, In Search of Lost Time. And he created one of his characters. He created three characters who represented the arts. One was a composer, one was a, a, a novelist, and one was a painter. And the painter he called El Steer. And El Steer's name comes as, um, uh, from an amalgam of these two painters, Paul Elieu and James Whistler. So you get Elieu Whistler becomes El Steer. Uh, he created characters as almost as pastiches. He took a little bit from this person, a little bit from that person, a little bit from another person. And so people always look at Proust's characters and try to say, oh, that's so-and-so. Well, it's never that simple. It's never that um, uh, pat. He always drew from so many sources so that he could say, oh, yes, but it's only his laugh that I use. This is the room uh, Proust used to spend his summers at in Cabourg, on the Norman coast. This is the Grand Hotel de Cabourg. This is the Proust room. And this is the view from the window looking out onto the sea. Is that photograph? Yes. Um, the figure of El Steer, the character, the painter, is introduced to the narrator in this seaside town. And the two things happen if, in this, well, 7,000 things happen. <coughs> Two things specifically happen in this passage of the novel where the, um, the young man goes to the seaside from Paris 
and he spots a band of young girls on the beach from his hotel window and he becomes completely infatuated with him and he develops his first mature sexual relationships in his you know or the desires in his mind um, and he uh, lusts after them and he does everything to be with them and he wants to be known by them and he's nobody and and they're everything and then that slowly he begins to become um, absorbed in their circle but he still uh, hasn't really had a chance to meet them so one day he goes to visit the studio of El Steer, the, the great painter, whose studio is nearby. He doesn't really want to go, but his grandmother says, you should go. So he goes. He'd rather be on the beach looking for the girls. And when he's at, the, the, at El Steer's studio, he finds out that El Steer knows them, and El Steer can introduce them. So that winds up being the way that he does meet the girls. Um, all of that comes back to this, uh, this window out of which he looks, he begins to realize that Elstir is painting this sea and sky. And it is a subject that is of great interest to him, and he, and he works uh, enormous paintings on the subject. And then the narrator writes, Sometimes from my window at the hotel in Baalbek, I had been led by some effect of sunlight to mistake what was only a darker stretch of sea for a distant coastline or to gaze delightedly at a belt of liquid azure without knowing whether it belonged to sea or sky. Presently, my reason would reestablish between the elements the distinction which my first impression had abolished. But these rare moments in which we see nature as she is, poetically, were those from which Elstier's work was created. One of the metaphors that occurred most frequently in his seascapes was precisely that which comparing land to sea suppressed all demarcation between them. Now, this idea of suppressing the demarcation between categories is also a very Proustian ideal, so that um, the idea of Jewish and non-Jewish, the idea of aristocratic, of bourgeois, all of those demarcations through the eyes of Elstir, which came to him through the eyes of Whistler, begin to be his, his pervasive ethos in writing uh, uh, his novel. And another division in which Proust attempts to suppress all demarcation is the notion of sexuality in terms of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. And that same day when the narrator goes to Elstir's studio and sees his great works, he's also rifling through some pictures and he comes across a watercolor of a young woman who is dressed as a man. And it has on the bottom Miss Sacrapant 1872. Now, Sacrapant is the name of a, an 18th century comic opera in which the male uh, bass comes on stage in a dress. And it's a, it's a travesty. It's very famous. He uses, Proust takes this name, Sacrapant, attaches it to this watercolor of a woman in drag. And the, um, the narrator is just completely smitten by this picture because it's so lifelike, it's so ambiguous. He's not sure if it's a man looking like a woman or a woman looking like a man. He brings all of that into the story. And as he's looking at it, he realizes, oh my goodness, this is Odette Swan. This is the woman that Swan, the courtesan that Swan had devoted his, uh, his life to and married. And all of a sudden, we see her past. And through a painting, the past comes alive. 
So he's mixing all these ideas, and he begins to he begins he realizes at the time that he's seeing Odette dressed as a man. He knows that Elstir, he realizes, who must have painted this a long time ago, was a character that we've met earlier in the novel called Biche, but we've never put that together before. And Biche is a, the French word for doe, for a female deer. It's kind of you say that like you know honey, you say Biche. Um, so all of a sudden we have Elstir, this very virile. Uh, painter who has a past that is somewhat a little bit more shady in terms of his sexual uh, orientation. So all of this is coming to us through the eyes of the narrator in the novel. The use of the painting in which all these things transpire, the focus of the painting is, is really bringing all of his studying in the Louvre and in, in, in Italy, um, all of that comes to the fore in this scene, which is just written off very slightly. You could miss it completely in the novel. But in Proust's own life, this is a portrait of a woman uh, named Rejane. Rejane was to comedy what Sarah Bernhardt was to tragedy on the French stage. She was a great, great comedienne, the star of the Comédie Française. And Proust got to know her through her son. And when Proust later on in life was had to move out of an apartment and to find another apartment. He lived with Rejean in her house uh, in Paris for several months. And when she was leaving, when he was leaving to move to another apartment, his son said, my mother wants to give you something in memory of this time you've spent with us. Um, and he said, I love that portrait of her dressed up as a man from one of her roles. And so this was a picture that Proust kept with him for the rest of his life. Now, if we roll the curtain back a little bit, we come back to the historical aspect in which this whole thing about Miss Sacrapant that Proust has written refers to a painting, to a photograph that Proust's own father, the very eminent Paris physician, who was a man of his class and, as men of the class did, had mistresses. And he, his father, had an affair with a woman named Mary Van Zandt, who was a cabaret singer. And his father always kept with him a photograph of Mary Van Zandt in drag. Now, that, when he died, came to Proust. And so all of this idea of uh, sexual travesty and, and sexual ambiguity is so rich in his life from both his observations of painting and from his own historical, personal history. This is one of the great scenes in which a painting is used in Proust. He, it's perhaps the greatest scene in which a painting is evoked in literature, I, I believe. The background for it is that the novelist in the novel is called Bergut. And he is very successful. He's at the end of his life. He hasn't been out of doors for years. He just locked himself away writing. And the circumstances of his death were as follows. A fairly mild attack of uremia had led to his being ordered to rest. But an art critic, having written somewhere that in Vermeer's view of Delft, a picture which he adored and imagined that he knew by heart, a little patch of yellow wall, which he could not remember, was so well painted that it was like some priceless specimen of Chinese art, of a beauty that was sufficient in itself. Their gut ate a few potatoes, left his house, and went to the exhibition. At the first few steps he had to climb, he was overcome by an attack of dizziness. 
he walked past several pictures and was struck by the aridity and pointlessness of such an artificial kind of art. At last he came to the Vermeer, which he remembered as more striking, more different from anything else he knew, but in which, thanks to the critic's article, he now noticed for the first time some small figures in blue, that the sand was pink, and finally, the precious substance of the tiny patch of yellow wall. His dizziness increased. He fixed his gaze on the precious little patch of wall. That's how I ought to have written, he said. My last books are too dry. I ought to have gone over them with a few layers of color, made my language precious in itself, like this little patch of yellow wall. Meanwhile, he was not unconscious of the gravity of his condition. In a celestial pair of scales that appeared to him, weighing down one of the pans, he saw his own life, while the other contained the little patch of yellow wall, so beautifully painted in yellow. He felt that he had rashly sacrificed the former for the latter. He repeated to himself, little patch of yellow wall, little patch of yellow wall, little patch of yellow wall with a sloping roof. Meanwhile, he sank down to a circular settee, whereupon he suddenly ceased to think that his life was in jeopardy, and reverting to his natural optimism, told himself, it's nothing, merely a touch of indigestion from those potatoes which were undercooked. A fresh attack struck him down. He rolled from the settee to the floor as visitors and attendants came hurrying to his assistance. He was dead. It could almost be said that it was the painting that killed him. This is the room in which Proust died. This was the bed in which he wrote so much of his great book. And as a painter, I'm always struck by the fact that the dingy walls are so bare. (laughs) The striped wallpaper is so sad. And yet, what we have to realize is that for Proust, his mind was a museum. And he had all of these images that he lived with and lived with and understood and played, came to the fore. And the great French critic Roland Barthes talked a lot about how Proust developed his power as a writer. And he said, um, for Proust, it was always better to have seen than to see. Thank you very much. Eric, thank you. So, um, I'd like to open this up for questions. And I'd like to ask you, because this is recorded and we'll have a PDF of the, uh, of the slides, um, uh, your questions matter. And so if they are succinct and if you project your voice so that Ken's uh, microphones overhead can pick you up, that helps with the quality of the dialogue. Any questions or comments? Yes, right there. Yes, when you uh, started to get interested in the uh, intersection between art and spirit, what, what books were you drawn to? I'm sorry, what? What books were you drawn to? Are you referring to actually when I spoke about my own work? Um, I would say that that was not a literary conjunction. That was more of a painterly one. So I'm not aware really of, I mean, I can think of any number of books about spirit and art. Um, 
at another time. <laughs> at the moment, um, I'm sorry. I, let me think about um, about that. You can come back to it too, as the you know. Yeah. Conversation goes on, um, but it's a great question. But do you mean specifically painting art or, or art in general? Just as you entered that realm, did you go to any books to help guide you through that? It's a very interesting question because um, I have often in my own life separated out the, the inclination towards reading and the inclination towards painting. Um, and this was uh, more of a painting issue, but I'm always reading, so it's not unrelated, but I'm going to fudge the question right now and, and think about it. Thank but you. isn't it true just on that point that the, the HIV epidemic that generated that extraordinary uh, contemplative space mm -hmm probably connected to that conjunction of art and spirit as well, or not? Yes, but I couldn't uh, re relate to a text. That no, I, I understand, not a text, but an event. Uh, but I think you're asking specifically about books, yeah, yes? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. That, yes. Well, I was wondering, um, <laughs> along those lines, of thinking about your life and how you construct it, and how you decide when you're going to paint and when you're going to write a novel, because both of the things you're doing are so huge. Well, um, I've always been a painter. I think of myself as a painter. I've always been a reader, too. But it's only until recently with this Proust project that I became a writer of, you know, of, of, of focus. So did you have to focus on the writing, or are you painting? Yes. You I was, while I was working on the book took about four years. Wow. And so I was painting at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, but when I had to be working on the book, I, I had to put, kind of put painting aside. But I could always go to it, go back and forth. Other comments? Yes? Uh, was that the famous cork-lined room, that last one? No, he did not die in the cork-lined room. That was the, one of the apartments that he was evicted from. Um, but uh, he spent, I think he was in that apartment for about 20 years. He was in it when his parents, he moved in with his parents. When he came back from Venice that time, I said the family was moving. That's when he moved into, that apartment is on the Boulevard Houseman. Um, and he lived in it with his parents. Then both of his parents died, and he stayed on and on. And it was a huge apartment. It was, it was at one point, uh, the building was not owned by him. It was owned by the family, and the family overruled him, decided to sell it, and he had to find lodgings elsewhere. And that, he went to Rejan's house for a few months, and then he went to that last apartment. He was in, only in that apartment for about four years. The other thing that I neglected to mention was that uh, Proust wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, and at one point, one point, finally, he stopped, and he wrote the word, fin the end. But of course it was years and years, the rest of his life was still devoted to editing because he always was changing and always adding. And what I wanted to say was that the Vermeer passage that I just read, he was working on the day that he died. So that there were revisions and he carried this with him. He did actually, he went, he did, Proust went to the, uh, an exhibit at the Jeu de Pomme where Vermeer's painting was hung. But he had already written all of this as a character of um, uh, Bergot going to see the exhibition. Hmm. Other comments, questions? Yes, Mike. Um, <clears throat> uh, during the, the picture of the Chardin, with the, of the cup and saucer and the cooking, the Madeleine, and you had mentioned this, that the Madeleine is a famous mnemonic, it's a famous springboard to memory. You also said the word cobblestone yes. extemporaneously. Mm -hmm. um, and you might want to 
explain what that is. Well, that um, thank you. That was um, another touchstone, less famous than the Madeleine, because most people don't get past the first volume. Um, <laughs> and you should all feel fine about that, really. <laughs> takes a certain twisted... Uh, no. <laughs> um, but in the last volume, uh, 3,200 pages into the novel, the narrator goes to attend a party at the Princess de Guermont's, and in the massive courtyard that he's traversing to get from the street to the house, he steps on a, a, a cobblestone, a paving stone, and it's loose, and it rocks, and all of a sudden he's in Venice. And so that little thing that we walk by thousands of times, we step upon, is somehow, if we are careful and we're thoughtful about it, is it can be a key to us understanding not only our past, but ourselves. So, Eric, just hearing your talk and seeing these paintings, and for some, for a person, not my, me, I'm afraid, who would be a devotee of reading Proust, to not have had the paintings, to not be able to see those paintings as you're reading these descriptions, would really, um, you know, is a loss. And so I'm wondering if maybe you could share reactions to your book of finally pulling this all together for those, you know, people who are devotees. Well, um, one thing to say up front is that I have focused on one aspect of Proust. When you read Proust, you are bombarded with a similar thing in music, with literature. So, you know, I'm a painter, and this is what I saw in the book that I felt could be fleshed out. Because I've spent my life going to museums, I'm a painter, I studied art history, and almost two-thirds of the references in the novel I did not know. And I've been reading the novel since I was young, and every time I read it I came across another painter I didn't know or a painting I couldn't identify. But you get so wrapped up in the reading, you know, yeah, yeah, I'm going to stop and find that, you know, so, so you keep going. So the last time, when I was 50, which started for the fifth time reading the book, um, there was, I decided this time I go through it. Every time I come across a reference to a painting or a painter, I'm just going to make a notation. When I was done, I had over 300 little slips of paper in my book. And I realized, this is, you know, there's something here that could be helpful. Now, the reactions I've been getting have been, you know, um, remarkable because people, very sophisticated and erudite writers have said, oh, you know, thank you, I've never... I've never been able to visualize this before. I get, I've gotten like 100 emails from people I don't know just thanking me for it. Um, the French, there was a review of the book. In, the book sold out in France in three weeks, the first printing, <laughs> you know, um, which was just amazing. Um, although one of the critics said, oh, this book is just a tool. <laughs> and it, in, in French. French. Yeah, but that's exactly what the book is. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't have any... Uh, claim to be an, an academic or a scholar, but uh, it is meant to be a tool so that uh, people read the book and they have my book alongside them. It's a, it's a companion guide. Like the, yeah. yeah. And I mean, if many people, you can find the view of Delft, the last painting by Vermeer. You can find the Botticelli. But there is, if you don't understand, or if you can't visualize what Proust is expressing, he often, this actually in this uh, Art in America review, this little uh, excerpt says, Closely following the novel, Karpolis chooses passages that show Proust's use of art as part of a scathing critique of aristocratic snobbery, hypocrisy, and intellectual pretensions. 
Now, I didn't choose to go into that tonight, but that is one of the things. He uses paintings. People in Paris, I said people at this point were, painting was so alive to all of them. And you would get on a bus and you'd run into somebody they know. This is a scene that Proust puts into the novel, two people talking and said, what do you think of the, the Machard portrait? Have you seen it? And the other person says, no, no, you know, he said, well, you have to take a position. Is it great or is it terrible? <laughs> and this is the kind of thing that you were judged by your peers according to what art you valued. And Proust used that. And if you don't know who Machard is, you don't know which side of the argument you were going to fall on. And so that's, you know, if you have my, the book, if you have my book. Uh, <laughs> yes? Two questions. How long did the project take? And secondly, were there moments during the time you were working on this uh, trying to knit together uh, visual art and literature that you began to feel like a Proustian character yourself? <laughs> that's a very nice question. Uh, the first question is, four years. Um, as I said, I'd started reading uh, when I turned 50. Um, I actually received, there was a new translation of Proust that was done in um, eight, uh, 90, what is it, 2004? Yeah, a few, five years ago. And it was seven volumes done by seven, each volume by a different translator. Mm -hmm. And it was not overall very successful, but um, I decided that this is, I would read this to see how this translation was, and I started that. And um, I finished that in about, you know, it usually takes me three or four months to read it, uh, because I'm familiar with it, and I, I just get such pleasure at it, and I don't see Mike for, you know, those four months. I'm just like, <laughs> you know. um, and when I finished that, and I saw the 300 markers, and I said, this is going to be a book. I started then, and four years later, almost to the day, I got, you know, this came in the mail. So, um, and as for feeling like a Proustian character, um, it's an interesting. <laughs> I don't feel uh, the same intensity as most Proustian. I mean, I don't represent in myself a certain intense singular drive. You know, a character in a novel tends to be very complex, but also to have one identifying aspect. And I'm not sure, I, I haven't ever thought of myself as a character in a novel. Um, so, have you? <laughs> Question right back there. Uh, I was fascinated by what you said about how Proust and his friends from the army would look at people that they knew in their daily lives and recognize them in the paintings that they had been seeing. And I wondered if that's a habit that you learned from him, if that's something that you yourself do. Well, actually, it's something that when I was young, I spent a lot of time in museum myself, and I did often make those associations. And more, it's more about a detail, that, and that was a way to get drawn into a picture. If there was something about, for instance, the way a person would stand. There's a, a wonderful um, portrait by Goya of um, the Marquise de Solana in the Louvre. And she's a woman standing, you know, in all this headdress, and she's kind of cut her feet like this, and she's standing like that. And... Um, Many years later, I was at a cafe, and the woman who owned the cafe was standing at the door of the cafe, and she was just standing like, you know, market. and it was, I knew right away, I made that association. And so it does for me, it, it does, um, it, it is something that I do do. And um, I think many people who are visually oriented do that, do that themselves. Yes. I'm wondering if you were surprised by some of the references of artists you've never heard of before. 
if there were, it was if it was hard to track them down and you found out things that you didn't didn't know existed. It was an enormous education for me, this uh, project, and that was part of why I went into it. I had a lot to learn. I knew I didn't know the names and I didn't know what they would represent, and it was a, a voyage of discovery. Um, I have to say, I would never have done this book without the internet. That this book would have taken 15 years or 20 years. Um, it is one of the not that I found the images or the references, but it gave me um, a, a context much more quickly to find out where I could find these, where I could track them down. An interesting story is that um, of all the painters, uh, there are about 112 painters who are named <coughs> by Proust in the novel. Uh, in the novel that was published, in the we have about six or seven thousand pages more, I think, that were part of the novel that were edited and you know rejected and you know and there are four or five hundred more painters named so at one point he would say Renoir another another draft he would say you know um, uh, somebody more obscure or, but uh, of all those painters I contacted the 112 the, you know either the museums or the, the estates that represent them only one painter refused to be included and this was a painter named um, Henri Le Cidane who painted still lives mostly in seascapes, very much in a kind of, um, uh, not quite pointillist, but, but um, uh, fractured surfaces, but very recognizable, very uh, you know, lovely, not, not masterful, not great, um, but you know, a solid body, body of work. And in the novel, Proust has a conversation between a woman who's trying to impress everybody with how much she knows, and uh, a group of people. And the woman says, you know, essentially, um, that Monet is a fraud, and Le Cidane is the great painter of the era. <laughs> and clearly, Proust is, you know, mocking her and setting us up for... And then there's another scene in which the lawyer takes up the, the, the case for Le Cidane and says, oh, you must come to my house. I collect his seascapes and goes on about how wonderful, what a wonderful painter he is and how people get invested in their own aesthetic vision and believe it's valuable, which of course it is. But he's, he is clearly mocking them. And the grandson of Henri de Sidonet, who represents the estate now, point-blank refused to have anything to do with the book. You know. And you know, it's, you know, the immorta- his immortality is based upon Proust, not upon his paintings. <laughs> the only reason anyone knows his name today which is also true of Charles Haas, the man I said who was the only Jew in the jockey club. The only reason we know the name Charles Haas today is because he is the, one of the models for Charles Swan. Eric, you said this was a voyage of discovery for you to do uh, the research in the book. Um, can you say in any way how the whole project changed you or helped in your own evolution? Um, that question is an ongoing, has an ongoing answer, um, because having been so drawn into this world, uh, somewhat at the expense of my painting, it has begun to shift my sensibility about what it is that I really want to do. Because I have found that I do have a voice, a writing voice, um, and I have found that. I have a body of work of painting that exists. Um, this is all tied in with the transfer. We, 
moved from the East Coast to Bolinas just a year and a half ago. And so in with the book, all this upheaval happening, and now I'm trying to, I find myself not um, having visual impulses surface, but uh, verbal or literary ones. So we'll see. Eric Karpolis, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you.